0: This morning we're going to start actually with our memory verse, our memory verse for the month. So it's a new month. We have a new verse. And we're going to be digging into a hard part of the book of 1 Corinthians over the next several weeks. So this verse is very fitting. Will you recite this verse with me? 1 Corinthians 1.8 He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.8. We are going to be digging deep into the topic of sin over the next several weeks. And as we dig into the topic of sin, we need to remember that our sins, if we accept that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, if we accept that, then our sins have been paid for. And he has promised us that he will present us perfect. So while we talk about hard things like sin... We must remember that the problem of sin has been solved. It's through Jesus. We need to turn to Jesus and accept his offer of salvation. We do not strive to live perfectly that we might earn salvation. That is not what we're doing. We strive to live in light of the fact that we already have been given salvation. So as we dig in, keep that always in the back of your mind. I want to tell you a story about being young and naive, and it doesn't involve anything that happened yesterday. Um, (laughs) uh, Those of you wives, and you'll know who you are once I say it, you'd be proud of your husbands. Um, (laughs) And some of you think, well, why would I be proud? And others of you just are going to shake your heads. But this story happens actually... About 15 years ago. I had a root canal when I was very young, so let me, let me explain to you how this happened. Uh, Emily and I were driving in the car. We were driving to a conference. I was 20 years old, and my tooth started to hurt as we were driving to the conference, and uh, I thought, well, that's not good. Um, that kind of feels like a cavity. I hadn't been to the dentist in decades, uh, and I was 20 years old, so put that together. Um <laughs> We were driving, and it started to hurt, and I thought, well, Emily and I don't have a lot of money, and we don't have dental insurance, and I'm pretty sure I can tough this one out. And so I toughed it out, and I toughed it out for two years. And eventually, a chunk of my tooth like actually fell off, um, and it exposed the nerve to air, and uh, 48 hours later, I had a root canal done. It hurt really bad. And what I learned was a really important lesson. When it comes to death and decay, you don't cut it out, you drill it out. You don't tough it out, you drill it out, and you get it out of there because it only gets worse. Let's read in our Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you, in this way I have already passed judgment. In the name of our Lord Jesus, on the one who has been doing this, so when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that the little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, so that you may be new, unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul's got some pretty sharp words. Remember what has been going on in Corinth up to this point. Leading up to this point, Paul has been dealing with problems in Corinth. And the biggest problem that he dealt with in the first four chapters as we've been going through it was a problem of unity. There was a problem in Corinth. The church was tribal. They had this group, this group, this group, and they had disunity over that. Paul has dealt with that in four chapters, and he's hammered that in. So now he moves on to another issue. Now, sins are always interconnected, right? It's never like cut and dry, here's the issues. In fact, things are all tied together. But the issue that Paul is dealing with here is a case of incest. But there's a bigger issue that Paul's dealing with. And that is the case of the church not just ignoring sin, but being proud that they ignored sin. Taking pride in the fact that they're overlooking a serious problem. So what we need to see here is that Paul's argument, Paul's claim, his statement, is to look critically. Look critically at your life. Look critically at your church and deal with problems. Don't let them fester. Drill it out. Don't try to tough it out. So the first point in verses 1 through 5, sin is a present reality that cannot be ignored. Pastor David commented that we have probably sinned this morning already. Sin is a present reality It is part of living in the world, and it cannot be ignored. We must deal with sin. We must root sin out. The first, though, statement that I see here in verses 1 through 2 is that grace should never be used as an excuse for sin. Grace should never be used. Paul begins with this phrase, It is actually reported. Um, This is a statement of shock and dismay. I cannot believe what I have heard. It's actually reported. I'm actually hearing that there is sexual immorality among you. And so that immediately gets us to the the hard question. What is sexual immorality? What exactly is going on? In this case, Paul tells us, but we should deal with what what is sexual immorality? Because that's the general statement that Paul uses. The Greek word here is porneia. And we'll talk about it a little bit more later today, and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks again, because it's just going to keep coming up. But the Greek word is pornea. Pornea refers to any sex taking place outside of marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible's definition of sexual immorality is very clear. Anyone who wants to debate it needs to set aside their thoughts and genuinely read and genuinely research it. The Bible very clearly defines what is acceptable. Acceptable sex is sex between a married man to his wife. Plain and simple. That's what the Bible says. The Apostle Paul is writing, though, in a culture that views the world very differently. The culture of the Greek society viewed the world very differently. They viewed sex as a necessity, you need to eat and drink, you need to sleep, and you need to have sex. That's how the Greeks viewed it. As a result, in the Greek world, free sex, that was fine. Go for it. Whatever, whatever you need. Prostitution, absolutely, not a problem. Nobody better be like clipping out things I'm saying here and making a meme of me, by the way. <laughs> if you want homosexuality, the Greeks said, go for it, not a problem. Paul writes, no, sexual immorality has no place. And in fact, he goes a little bit further here. He says, in fact, it's not just that you guys have sexual immorality in the church, but you have a, the one thing that even the Greeks, even the pagans won't do this. You're tolerating a man sleeping with his father's wife. You're tolerating incest. Paul says, what you are doing is absurd. And the Greek grammar here suggests that it's not just a one-time thing. The Greek grammar suggests that this is an ongoing relationship that just keeps taking place. We all sin, but there are those who refuse to repent from their sin. There are those who engage continually in sin and refuse to repent. And Paul has very strong words. Do not tolerate this. He says, you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? You're taking pride in the fact that you're tolerating this. Shouldn't you instead be mourning sin? In verses three through five, what he says is, no, sin should be dealt with. Don't let sin go unchecked. Paul says, when the church gathers, when you are together, when We are gathered right now. When the church gathers, you are gathering in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are here not in our own name, not in our own power, not in our own authority. We're here in the power and authority of the Lord Jesus. And so the things we do should not reflect my desires. They shouldn't reflect your desires. They must reflect God's desires. And God says, deal with sin. Paul says, looking in verses 3 through 5. So when you are assembled, this is verse 4, and I am with you in the Spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Turn him over, deal with sin. Now, we should talk about what this phrase, the destruction of the flesh, actually means. There's a, a lot of views on it. I'm going to give you my view. Flesh in the Bible, often has two different meanings. Okay? It means your flesh, or it means your sin nature, the issues you struggle with, your propensity towards sin. I think that's the actual use of flesh here. Other people would disagree with me. Other people are, will say that this is hand him over to Satan so that he can be killed, which you can make an argument for that. I think what Paul is saying is, no, push him out, Send him out, remove the sin from the church in order that he may come to the realization that he is wrong and he may give up that sin. Give up that fleshly desire. Put him out. It doesn't mean damn him. That's not what he's saying. This is not send him for eternal damnation. No, this is put him out of the congregation to deal with the sin. Matthew 18 deals with this as well. Disclaimer, we're not doing this today or anything. Um, I know whenever someone turns to Matthew 18, people go, what's happening? No, we're not doing that. We are preventative maintenance today. Uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17 deals with this. It says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out that fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that the matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Put them out of fellowship. It doesn't say destroy them. It doesn't say slander them. It doesn't say publish a newspaper article about them. No, you simply remove them. Put them out. That's God's model for dealing with sin. Sin is a present reality. It happens. Grace should never be used as an excuse for sin. And sin always must be dealt with. And I'm going to tell you that when you read this, when I read this, I think like that would ever work. Like that would ever fix the problem. Like they would ever turn back to God. Um, I had the privilege of being in a church a number of years ago where this actually did work. Somebody got involved with somebody else, had an affair, started living with uh, somebody who wasn't their husband. The church followed Matthew 18. Two people went and confronted. The church wrote a letter. The church reached out. Finally, the church said, you are continuing in sin. We are removing you from the fellowship. It doesn't mean that you're not ever allowed on this property again. It does mean that we do not consider you part of this fellowship. And two years passed where the person had no communication with the church. Third year, they walked into the church, broken, and apologized for their sin. It works. God's plan will work. Sin must be dealt with. Why? Because sin is insidious. Look at verses 6 through 8, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sin is insidious. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough?" I am really, really glad that we have refrigerators. <laughs> um, but I want to tell you a little bit from the culture of what's going on here. In the, in the ancient world, refrigeration was not real common, and uh, if, if at all possible. I mean, sometimes you could have ice places, but that was difficult. Uh, what you did in order to make your bread, in order to get yeast that would rise, because you also didn't have pure yeast, is you would make a loaf of bread, and inevitably there would be some contaminants in that bread. And as that contaminant breathes and it produces um, more contaminant, which we call yeast, it would cause the bread to rise. Now, when you cook bread, it kills all of the yeast. So the solution is really quite simple. After you've got a loaf of bread that's sat for a little bit, you tear a chunk off before you cook it, and you put that aside, and you cook what's left. And then the next time you're making bread, you take your chunk, for lack of a better way of putting your bacteria-laden chunk, and you mix it back in with your new batch of dough, let it rise, pull a chunk off. And so you're constantly doing this. Well, yeast is great, but there are other bacteria that aren't so great. And so the solution that the ancient world came up with was periodically you would get rid of it all. Because if you let things fester for long enough, really bad things happen. So periodically you would get rid of it all. Because a little yeast grows to be a lot of yeast, and a little bacteria grows to be a lot of bacteria. What Paul is using as a comparison, saying be careful, we must recognize the danger of sin. A little yeast, it just takes a little bit. To spread throughout the entire lump. And then Paul paints us a beautiful picture using the Passover. We call it the Passover, they called it the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you remember back to Exodus, back in Exodus, when Israel was first leaving the promised land, or sorry, leaving Egypt for the promised land, a new nation is being born. And in order to symbolize this new nation being born, as part of the Passover ceremony, God says, take your houses, clean out all the yeast. Get rid of it all. Bring a lamb, your best lamb, into the house for a month and treat it like a pet. And on the last day, while you're eating that, I will pass over Egypt and slay the firstborn. The Feast of Unleavened Bread... Paul says here is actually a picture of how we are to respond to sin. How is it a picture of how we are to respond to sin? When Israel left Egypt, they became a new nation, a new creation, and God wanted them to start fresh. And so part of that starting fresh was actually this Passover event. It symbolized starting new. Then every year thereafter... Israel celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread in memorial, but also cleaning everything out again. Every year they cleaned it all out, just like they had done at the Passover, that first Passover. Here Paul says, just like Israel was drawn out of Egypt in the Passover, and then every year they celebrated, they cleaned it all out, we too must clean our lives out. Get rid of the old yeast. Get rid of it. You have been washed. You have been created new. God has called you to new life. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are created anew and called to new life. But sin creeps in. Sin creeps in. And so the act that we need to do is to clear it out. Take time, reflect, and clear the sin from our life confessing it to God, asking for forgiveness. Why? Not because we're not a new creation. We're already the new creation. But in an act of honor to God, of memorial to God, and to clean up our life. So let me give you an action step here. My action step is to ruthlessly root sin out of your life. Ruthlessly root it out. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, made no sense to celebrate if you didn't clean it all out. It only takes a little leaven to leaven the whole lump. It only takes a little bacteria to spread. It only takes a little cavity to make your life miserable. Root out sin. And don't ignore the sin of others. If you see sin in others, tell them. Because it's the loving thing to do. I probably should have told Emily that I was feeling a fair amount of pain. I don't think she would have let me keep going. (laughs) Root the sin out of others as well. In verses 9 through 11, what I am told is that we are called to differentiate between those who are in the church and those who are not. Our response to those who are part of our church is different from those who are not. Our response as a church is different than those who are not. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, here is, might be one of those proof moments. We do not have everything Paul ever wrote in our Bibles. Okay, Paul wrote more than what we actually have because everything Paul wrote was not scripture. Only some of what Paul wrote is scripture, and we have that. Paul apparently had written a previous letter to the Corinthians in which he had told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now remember, I already told you a lot about what sexual immorality was. Paul had written, Don't associate with sexually immoral people. We are called to sexual purity. We can't ignore that. The Bible speaks to that. We are called to sexual purity. The biblical definition of sexual immorality is actually quite broad. Lots of things would fit within that. Casual sex is not something that a Christian should be participating in. We shouldn't. We shouldn't have anything to do with it. Premarital sex is strictly off-limits for the Christian. Homosexuality is strictly off-limits for the Christian. That's God's standard. It's not my standard. It's not the church's standard. That's God's standard. Don't let people tell you that the Bible doesn't speak to it. It does. But we're not called to just abandon the world. So while we are called to sexual purity, we are not called to a monistic life that abandons the world. We're called to balance our own purity with the sinfulness of the world. We recognize that there are a lot of sins out there. And we remain pure. Paul says in verse 10, not at all meaning the people of this world. What's that in reference to? That's in reference to verse 9 where he says, I wrote to you not to associate with the sexually immoral people. But don't take that to mean the people of the world because the people of the world are unredeemed. They don't know better. They are slaves to sin. When they sin, they do what is natural to them. No, what Paul is saying is it doesn't mean the people of the world because the people of the world are immoral. They are greedy. They are swindlers. They're idolaters. If you were to disassociate from everybody who ever sinned, you would wind up being monastic. You couldn't do it in this world. Paul says, that's not what I'm talking about. No, what I'm talking about is that we are called to take care with whom we have fellowship. Paul says, be careful about who you have close relationship with. You are called to purity. So be careful with whom you have your closest relationships. Paul says, don't associate, don't even eat together with people who refuse to be pure, who refuse to strive for holiness. Now, does this mean that Joe sins once and so we disassociate with him? No, that's not what it means Logically, like if we just think about it, but also grammatically. Paul, Paul uses a present subjunctive for the grammarians out there. Present subjunctive means that it's something that's ongoing. Someone who consistently is practicing these behaviors. Paul says, don't have close relationships with them. And so immediately you ask, well, what does that mean? And so I want to challenge you. Our inability to comprehend what it means To not eat together, to not have close relationships, is not the result of a lack of culture. It's a lack of fellowship in our church. If we had the fellowship that we should have as a church, we would understand exactly what it means to not associate with those. We need more fellowship within our church so that our relationships are closer together, so that we can take care with whom we have fellowship because we do it as a church. Don't just come for the sermon. Stay for the fellowship. I actually wish as a church that we got to the point where people were like, I'll put up with the sermon because I want to be part of the fellowship. Thanks, Scott. That's where we should be. That's what we are striving for is those sorts of relationships as a church. Let me make it a little bit more practical. Think about your temptations to sin, the times you struggle the most. How often are you tempted, really, truly, like deeply tempted, when you're engaged in fellowship with other believers? Compare that with how often are you tempted when you're at home on Facebook or when you're sitting by yourself watching TV. The solution to our temptations to sin often would come if we had better fellowship. I challenge you that probably most of us would deal with a lot less temptation if we spent a lot more time together or we'd at least have a lot more victories in those temptations if we spent more time together. My action step, evaluate your fellowship. Are you in your fellowship protecting and enhancing your spiritual walk? Are your relationships that you are pouring into, are they in place to enhance and protect your spiritual walk? They should be. We need relationships to enhance and protect our spiritual walk. Over the weekend, I've got some pictures here just to give you an idea. Over the weekend, we did get together. A lot of the men were able to get together. And we had a wonderful time fellowshipping together, building relationship. And yes, Scott did push-ups in front of 375 people. And one, that was cool. But this is the sorts of things that we need to be striving for: is fellowship together. Men, mark your calendars. Spring game. We're going to buy a bunch of tickets and all get together. I think it's eleven dollars a person. So, spring game, spring Huskers game. Be thinking that direction. So we need opportunities to fellowship. Why? Because we are a body together, and we strive to build each other up. Look at verses 12 through 13 as our last point. In verses 12 through 13, Paul says, what business, is it, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And my point is not a typo in your bulletin. It is to emphasize it. Church membership demands accountability. Verse 12 reminds me that church membership demands accountability. And verse 13 reminds me that church membership demands accountability. Fellowship brings accountability. Fellowship brings victory. God did not give us the church just as something that we have to do. No, he gave us the church as a community where we bond together, we enter into covenant together. The church does have a covenant. You could read it, we could get it to you. We bond into covenant together to build each other up, to support each other, so that we can have victories in this life. We know that in the end, Christ will present us wholly to the Father. But right now, we strive for victory. And that comes through fellowship as a church. The church in Corinth needed to deal with the sin that was present. Sin is a present reality. It's insidious. And we are to deal with it within our church. Why? Because as a church, we strive to push each other towards holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church. The church that is a model, a place where we can come together and strive for godliness. Where we can fellowship together and push each other towards holiness. Father, I pray that you would help us to come together to push to fellowship, to enter into relationship that we might as a body strive for holiness, strive for purity. That we would ruthlessly eliminate sin looking to grow in you. Father, help us to seek the accountability that comes through true fellowship with you, true fellowship as a body under you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.